Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 84 of The Nathan Seward Show. The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Well, welcome to the show, guys. Hope you're having a great uh, week so far, having a good start to the week. I'm really excited to welcome Teo to the show. And I've known Teo for a few years now. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Teo was born and raised in Argentina, came to California in 1999. Uh, He has a passion for reaching out to young people in need of mentoring and guidance. And he's combined that with his unique understanding of wolves to create Wolf Connection, which is a sanctuary for wolves in LA. He is a TEDx speaker and has just launched his first book called The Wolf Connection, What Wolves Can Teach Us About Being Human. And Teo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Yeah, good to see you. I was just saying, it's been a while since we've hung out. It has been. Yeah. Too long. Yeah, much too long. Super excited to see that you've launched this book, and I know it's been a journey. Uh, how does it feel to have it completed? Uh, it's, it's a crazy, you know, first first book that I write and uh, with a big publisher. Beautiful. And I didn't know I didn't know it was going to be a journey like this. It's, uh, it's a crazy, crazy, crazy process to write a book with a level of editing and agendas. You know, the publisher has their own, the editors have their own. I mean, a lot of people that have a lot of lot to say about your work <laughs> and, and your material. So it's, it's, I didn't know that it was going to be that way. I didn't know the deadlines would come so fast. And, you know, I didn't know I was going to spend six in the morning till three in the morning for weeks at a time uh, writing them. So... In a way, for me, the book has been out for a long time. Mm. Now, of course, it's releasing tomorrow, but it's, the excitement has been coming for a while. And if there's anything that I have anticipation around is uh, I want to hear what people have to say about it. I want to hear, you know, there's a message that I wanted to put out. I wanted to impact people in a certain way. And I hope that I did. I hope that the book will do the job that I intended it to do. Well, super excited to dive into the book and hear about the process because it's certainly unique and you certainly have a unique message. But before we dive into that, I want to just go back a little bit. I always like to sort of know the person you know that we're talking to and kind of understand the journey that brought you here. So you're from Argentina originally. You grew up there. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. grew up in Buenos Aires. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what were some of the, the defining moments for you if you look back in your time in Argentina? There are a few. Um, uh, there are a few. One of the, one of the main ones. I grew up. You know, some of you have have seen the movie Evita. Some of you have seen or have heard about. It's a very dark period in Argentina history where uh, there was a, a, a military dictatorship. And so I grew up in that time, in a time of terrorism and tough, tough time. And by that definition, the economy in the country was really rough. And, and I, I grew up uh, pretty affluent until I was 10 years old. And then my father lost everything. We ended up literally on the street. And, wow. and, and that, had, that had marked me, you know, in a number of ways. And, and one was my relationship with money, my relationship with success. It took many years to, to process. And I believe those, those are the kind of marks that you continue processing for, for the rest of your life. Yeah, those are the defining ones. Yeah, yeah. How do you yeah, feel yeah. about that? Like thinking about being homeless, you know, your dad losing his job at ten years old. How do you feel about it now? Well, I mean, it's uh, I one one of the things that I prize myself of is being extremely resilient and extremely, you know, able to face whatever whatever comes my way. I can whatever balls you throw at me, I have a you know a forehand <laughs> and a backhand to 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 send it back, and and I believe that was part of it. Another defining moment was, uh, you know, going to the army after high school, and that further toughened me in a number of ways. It created um, a, a psychological hardness and ability to also face anything. And then it was my decision to leave for the states, and, and there was that much, you know, it was my mid twenties, and that was a consequence of I, I've been looking for a spiritual path since my teen years and reading different things, Hinduism and Buddhism and, and different traditions, Celtic philosophy. And I finally came across, I, I write about this in the book, came across uh, the writings of, of a man by the name of Carlos Castaneda. He wrote a number of books on his uh, shamanic apprenticeship and his writings really impacted me to the point that when I finished the, the last book, I went like, well, now I need to do. I need, mm-hmm. you know, There's nothing else to read, so I need to do. So I at uh, the time I had a business in Argentina, I pretty much gave it up. 
you know, sold sold my my half to my partner for what I could and left for the States uh, looking for this man, you know. And that's what brought me here. And it was, a, I mean, a huge defining moment but because that was that was a big uh, fork in the road from which I never returned. So what led you into, you had this kind of tough upbringing and this uh, military experience that toughens you up a little bit. What led you then into more philosophical teachings or what led you to read about Buddhism and stuff like that? What was the connection between the two? Or what got you into it? Like at, at what point did you get into Castaneda or uh, oh. Buddhism? What, what triggered the, the interest in that? I think it, is, it was part of the tracks because on the one hand, we had a, a life reality that, uh, I mean, it improved. It was, uh, it, was, it was a transition around 10 and then we ended up borrowing a home that had, uh, you know, only my one bedroom for me and my sisters and, and that was my teen years. Mm. Uh, but it was, it was tough. It was tough for uh, the better part of a decade. And, and parallel to that, I always had these experiences, if you might, you know, uh, very lucid dreaming and like an inner life that was very rich. Mm. So I, that's a that's really interesting question. I never actually connected the hardship with the spiritual quest. I would have to think about that. I always felt, you know, felt them as two separate tracks. Yeah, interesting. I, I think I struggle to make the connection for myself in my own life, but if I look at it logically, it's like, you know, being gay and then, you know, being in an all-boys school that didn't really allow me to express myself. And I think that led me inside, you know. So if I look back, I didn't think about it at the time, but trying to find answers and trying to understand life and understand myself and understand something bigger, why, why was this happening to me? So I think it was my circumstance that led me towards self-help or personal development. So I was just intrigued if it was similar for you. Yeah, I mean, I can I can definitely define it uh, that way. I mean, I had I had this experience since I was a child. Mm. I remember before my father uh, crashed financially, I um, I already had these extrasensorial experiences. But it can easily I, I can easily put the dots together around you know all this hardship created a, an even more relevant inner life yeah. where I could I could find uh, solace or I could find processing or an ability to cope. Yeah. And so it leads you to Carlos Castaneda and then yeah. you go on this journey to find him. Right. Right. And when I come to the States, you know, what I didn't know is that the the man had died just a few months before I came here. So crazy. I, uh, but I didn't know. And I'm glad I didn't because that would have stopped me from, from what it became in my life. And mm. so luckily enough, I was able to connect with people that had worked and studied with him for a number of years and um, I immersed myself into those teachings as as a assistant initially, then as an apprentice, um, and that was uh, twenty years ago. Mm. And can you give us the, the the highlights of his teachings? What were the because it, you you were incredibly fond of these teachings that really resonated with you? Yeah, they did. I mean, what what I the way I can describe. I mean, I can talk about some of the principles and the philosophy, which is fantastic in my opinion. That was the first time I read a book that had a transmission much bigger than the words written on the book. It was that any, every, every paragraph that I read had a, an impact at an energetic level. Wow. That, you know, I remember my first book, it took me eight months to read because I would read a, read a paragraph and it would take me two, three days to actually process it and come back to it. Mm-hmm. And, and that was my experience with his teachings. And then when I began the, the journey of, of uh, apprenticeship and the journey of uh, studying and teaching those, the material continue the same. I mean, it's like I had a receptor for it, if you might. And, and, and it matches my temperament in a way because it's, um, it, it has a, a very deep, very profound spiritual principles and at the same time is uh, rough in many ways. It has a roughness to it. has a it's deep esoteric practice comparable sometimes with what would be experienced in in esoteric Buddhism or, right? I mean, not, not just the mainstream stuff, but really when you go deep into, into the practice. Can you give us some highlights of like what the teachings are, the spiritual teachings? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the main piece is about, um, I mean, nothing, nothing can happen until you really get to know yourself, right? And this is, this is not new. The, what was new for me is the way in which you get to know yourself with uh, in, in this tradition, which is there's nowhere to hide. There's no 
explanation that would satisfy any out. It's, uh, I mean, it, it completely stripped off and faced, you know, uh, the way it said, you know, you faced infinity, you faced the, the universe naked. You know, some of the things, I mean, part of my training included, you know, years and years of uh, celibacy and very short hair and practice. You know, I, was, I had my job. I remember my first job in LA was um, I was washing cars for eight bucks an hour. Hmm. And and I was washing cars from seven in the morning till three. I would get home around four, four thirty, take a nap, and then practice from five or six until three or four in the morning, and then sleep for a few hours and then go back to work. And that was that was several years of that. And the practice includes a number of um, the certain movements that similar to Tai Chi but a little more intense that you know recycle the energy in the body, and then you use that recycle energy. To, to do some practice, one of which is called uh, recapitulation, in which you look at every single person you ever met in your life, um, even if it's for a moment. So you make these lists that are, you know, hundreds of pages long of, of people that you've met, and then you describe the stories that, you know, each interaction with each of those people, and then you review them from all the perspectives, from, and you do this in a state of... Um, a meditation state, so it's not a it's not a mental process. But you, once you have all this mapped out, you know you go one by one with a certain breath pattern, and and in silence with your eyes closed, you move your head, you begin to see the the scene, fill in your body, recycle it. I mean, it's a very complex, you know, years and years of practice to just go through one life life review. Mm. So that was that was one of them. Um, this this certain diet that you follow, it's a number of things. Yeah, and so moving from your home country to LA is a big move, regardless of yeah. if you're going into a deep spiritual practice for a couple of years. But what was the experience like as you were there for a couple of years and as you're sinking into it and you're in a new place? How did you evolve as a person? I, you know, Plan B has never been a forte for me. So <laughs> in in general, I I have plunged into things. Going to the army was a decision similar. To that, moving to the States, I mean, I kind of tend to burn the boats behind me, mm. uh, starting Wolf Connection with another one like that. And in those big, literally life-changing decisions, and, it, you know, you get to a fork in the road, you take one and and the other. Well, if, you, if I don't like it, I can always, you know, those kind of things that you do mm-hmm. in coaching. Well, you know, kind of to mitigate risk, if, you, if it goes bad, how much work it would take to go back and... Re- you know, if it would have gone bad to go back to Argentina to rebuild from scratch, it would have taken a lot of work. And a yeah. Lot, you know. So I think the, the fact that I that I did those things, I would imagine that's part of my personality. But also in those three instances in particular, there's something that takes over. I mean, I, I teach this to my to my clients. There's sometimes to my my students. There's sometimes uh, moments in which something bigger than you takes over, and if you dare to just step in, again it takes over. So. And it's stepping into the fog, so it's not you know it's not safety that it's gonna go well. There's, but I found at least those three instances in my life where I just something carried me through through a, tra- a monumental transition have paid off. Mm. So where the wolves come in? The wolf coming in a way as a consequence of one of the teachings of Carlos Castaneda. I mean, he talks about finding your path with heart, and the principle is that when you get to a certain level of presence or, or being one with the, the universe at large, there's no really, there's no purpose, intention, path, mission, none of that. You leave all of that behind. So how do you act? And you act because you decide to act. And that's all there is. And, the, and it's all based on your decisions and you follow your decisions you back them as if your life depends on it. Hmm. And so the path with heart, I mean, this, I'm paraphrasing a quote, I don't know if it's exactly like this, but he wrote something like said, it said like, um, everything is one in a million paths, they're all the same, so pick one. And pick one that will bring joy to your heart. Hmm. Because, you know, that one and the one next to it that will make you miserable, they're both the same, so pick the one that will that I will make for a, uh, a joyous journey. And Wolf Connection has been that for me. 
mm-hmm. thought it was going to be initially just teach the material of the Carlos Castaneda tradition. And I still do that to an extent. But I found taking that material and applying it fully into a venture of this time, an adventure that is relevant, an adventure that really changes lives, that is that puts me face to face with with the world financially, collaboratively, with having to work with people, lead people. I mean, it has been extremely enriching. So, so what, that, what, was the, what were the first steps when? How did you get introduced to the animals in the first place? I, I talk about that in one of the introductory chapters of the book. I I've been working with teens and youth for a long time, and I was looking for a more powerful way to engage them. When you work with people, I mean, you're a coach, and typically the people that come to you, I would imagine, have come to you willingly, and they have, they have a desire to show up and to sure. grow. Yeah. A lot of the people that I work with at Wolf Connection, you know, uh, incarcerated um, with fighting drug, drug abuse and you know, in foster care, in gangs, they don't come to willingly or they don't come open. They, they come willingly, but not open. Meaning if you work your ass off to get them to at least trust for a second, open up, you mm-hmm. know, give give what you have to say a consideration. I mean, otherwise you're just talking to the wall. And this is people that have constant adults and social workers, probation officers, attorneys, judges, talking to them constantly, trying to help, you know, and they, they shut down completely. So we're looking for something that would create that opening that would allow me to get a, couple, a few words in. Hmm. You'd already been drawn to working with teenagers. Yeah, so. by the time I started Wolf Connection, yeah. I, I started in Argentina as a mountain climber, and and that was another story. But <laughs> we can go to that. Uh, and, um, and then by the time I started Wolf Connection, I was an interventionist. Uh, for f- families with with teens that were struggling with, and then I also was um, uh, advocating for children in in on court, you know, for foster care cases, abuse cases, and so on. So I was very much involved in the youth world, um, and I was doing lectures in schools and so on. And I didn't feel my lectures were really impactful. I mean, they were impactful for a moment, but they were not creating lasting change. So I was looking for something more impactful. Mm. Uh, at the same time, I rescued a little wolf dog puppy that needed uh, help, you know, uh, from a backyard breeder in, in the suburbs of, of Los Angeles. A friend of mine, you know, gets his animal, you know, offers it to me. Long story short, I end up uh, adopting a six-weeks-old wolf dog mix. And Had you had dogs before? Yeah, I grew up with dogs. I, uh, I grew up with dogs and, and farm animals, and then I... When I came to, I was drawn to wild animals. When I came to the States, I volunteered for a few years on a wildlife preserve as a caretaker, primarily for three mountain lions from a, coming from an LA zoo program that closed down. So again, this is a many elements in one story, right? But mm-hmm. and I adopted this, this puppy and then I began looking for a playmate for her. These animals do better in pairs or in, in packs. So that search led me to find 16 wolves and wolf dogs from a hoarder facility that, you know, they were being abandoned and mistreated. I mean, so on. And, and, and so instead of taking one, I stayed and volunteered. And, and within three months, this is, the, this is what really happened. Within three months, I'm, I'm speaking with the woman that runs this facility where the animals were kept and speaking about the weather. And then randomly, I these words come out of my mouth. I say, you know, all my life, I wanted to start a wolf sanctuary. (laughs) And until that moment, that was not an idea formulated in my mind. It was certainly not true that all my life I wanted to do it, but the words were true. Something took over and still today trying to figure out if it was the wolf speaking through me, it was some internal longing. I was trying to show off. I have no clue what they really spoke through me. And, And that statement, she believed me. She said, well, I'll tell you what I, I teach you what I know. And I never looked back. So mm-hmm. I found myself, you know, starting a wolf sanctuary with no idea how to work with the wolves, with no idea how I was going to fund it, to organize it, to put it to, and nothing. It was a total, again, one of those moments that take over. And realistically, Nathan, these moments take over. And I personally, at the time that that happened to me, I did not have a choice. 
So that wasn't like, oh, something else taking over. I mean, I wasn't, I could say like something else was taking over and I chose to follow because I wasn't, I, I had no clue, man. I mean, I, I opened my mouth and I say words that I didn't know I had. <laughs> and, and then I backed them up with action. But it, through the entire process, I was almost in a hypnotic state. If mm. you might. It's a very interesting, very interesting. I find that fascinating. I mean, is that a result of all the training? Because it, it, it wasn't a coincidence you were doing this deep spiritual training and then you find yourself in a very surrendered state. As I would imagine, yeah, I would imagine. And the, the training what has done for me has opened, uh, made available certain current vibrations of energy that, mm. that have different effects. And I, I think this training made me, I mean, and I'm not, you know, accomplished in any way. Uh, so, so far, this training has made me probably a better tuned antenna or something for those vibrations. Right, yeah. right. So fascinating. So is there any part of you that's freaking out a little bit when you're getting into that? Man, well, at least I had uh, 200 bucks in the bank, so I had the financials <laughs> to take <laughs> I mean, I'm still freaking out today. Yeah. I'm How long has it been? 10 years. Mm. And I mean, there are moments today that I'm like, Meh, you know, what did I get myself into? And a number of levels. I mean, there are moments that, you know, Wolf Connection is a nonprofit. And, and they, you know, you can have, you can be really good at raising money, which we, we're still learning. Mm. And, but also the way to, you know, your ability to raise money goes up and down with the economy. And then, you know, if, if things get tough, the, the last thing that people think about is charitable contributions. Mm. And in the meantime, I keep growing the business. I mean, I have more animals. I have a huge staff now that depend on, on the organization for livelihood. That keeps me up at night, you know. And, um, and there's a piece, you know, saying goodbye to the wolves. We've we buried 30 or 40 wolves since we started. And it gets tougher every time. Wow. And that's something that I... That's one of the many things I did not consider when I jumped in. And I got to say, I mean, sometimes I say, I, I tell my team or I, knowing what I know today and the much of hardship, I, if I had to start it all over again, I probably would, but I would, I would hesitate a lot more. Wow. Yeah, it's tough. Speaking of the money, because I just a, a reality for a lot of people, I've heard you tell some really cool fundraising stories. What's your favorite one in terms of, you know, going out there to raise money. You've set yourself some challenges at times. You've done some like crazy asks at times. What's your favorite fundraising story? Well, the journey, like I said initially, one of the things that marked me as a young child was this financial hardship in my family. And so, so money has been, you know, all of us have our own, you know, one challenge. You know, some people is, is addiction. Some people is... Uh, abandonment. Some people. For me, it's money. For me, it's just ravishing good looks. Yeah, it's been hard. Yeah, I get overcome. it. I get it. It has to be tough. Yeah, yeah it, has. it has to be tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, yeah. You need help with it that. Be sympathy. <laughs> so it has been a journey. I mean, initially, I could not ask for money. I mean, so I was looking for every way. I mean, we have a mutual friend, you know, Rich Litvin, and he would describe me as the guy that can get anything without money. Because I would, I could get donation. I mean, someone can get donate vehicles, a piece of land, uh, fancy materials, but you know, I would not touch money. I was like a holy man, but not in the good sense. You know, I, I just, I just couldn't. And so I would do the the monkey dance, and I would, you know, give give donors a great time and all those things. And then I would never come around to actually say, "Would you consider making a donation?" Those words were really difficult for me. Mm. And they still are many times. They still are. I mean, I need to really prepare myself to deliver that simple line with conviction or with confidence. And then things began turning around a lot, a lot based on, on 4PC where we, you and I met. Mm. There's a lot of money conversations and that I was able to begin to catch up. Uh, there was uh, one of those, uh, you know, money games that we played. Remember that? Yeah. And then sort of one lunch, um, the challenge was to to go and make some money. So my, my plan for the day, for the lunch, was to you know, sit around and play with my phone for most of it and then come back to the room and, and lie and say that I made some fundraising calls, but I didn't. That was my, that was my plan. That was the plan. I, but I also, the problem was that I, you know, I, I developed some integrity as well over the years and I couldn't 
I couldn't come around to actually do that. So, so in the last, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes before the, the next session, I actually did, um, I said, well, if, you know, if I want to screw it up, I'm going to screw it up big. So I made three phone calls and I asked for a million dollars in each call. And I got two no's and, and I got left a message that I never got returned. And one of the, one of those three never talked to me again. So I was, was, you know, it has a cost, you know, to be, to try those kind of things. Bold, yeah. 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 But that, that, that did something for me, you know, and over the years I raised a lot more than that. And eventually I eventually got offered a million dollars. Someone came and offered a million dollars for a potential merger. And I didn't think that was going to be conducive, but a million dollars a year for five years, I thought book could make, could make a difference. So now I counter with a $5 million ask. So I found myself asking for that. It was a no as well, but now I'm, you know, in me, I'm getting this uh, over the hump of just voicing these big numbers and just put them in, put them, putting them out there. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a great story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holly just said, uh, "Beautiful story. Love how you started. You had no choice and answered your calling in a hypnotic state. So fascinating. I love this. It's, nice. There's something really beautiful about uh, that story. And you know, I'm a big fan of The Alchemist. It's my favorite book. And this idea yeah. of going on a personal journey, looking for your personal legend, following the signs." And so there is something very uh, poetic about your story. I think that's yep. why I'm so excited about your book coming out. It's because that was one of my favorite books too. I remember reading for the first time my you know, late teens and that made a deep, big difference. Yeah. yeah, incredible. Let's go on to the wolves because you know, this is something that everyone's fascinated, fascinated by. And just to try and understand a little bit more about wolves, if you could give us like some interesting things about wolves and how they behave because – I know a little bit just from being around you, but for the average person that doesn't know anything about wolves, maybe there's a lot of fear about wolves because it's a very powerful animal. What are some of the things you can tell us that are interesting about wolves? Well, one thing that I, a few a few things. One, the first one is that there's nothing I can tell you about wolves that would encompass all wolves. Right. They are extremely uh, varied and rich in their personalities, tendencies, behaviors. There are volumes written about wolf behavior and wolf observation, and then, and then scientists today are as surprised as they were 50 or 100 years ago watching behaviors you know, from slightly tricking each other and taking advantage of each other to uh, displays of incredible altruism and loyalty and love that are comparable only to some of the you know, heroic human Fits. So that's that's one thing to say. The other thing is, I mean, you mentioned people being scared. Uh, the fear of wolves is a cultural fear. It's not a fear based on reality. And it's a cultural fear that started based on my research around the time of the Inquisition. You know, the, the wolf has been probably the most sacred animal to pagan traditions before the, uh, the you know, the dark ages of, of Catholic Inquisition. And I'm going to go into the sacredness of wolf in a minute. So it seemed like, um, you know, started in Europe and, and everything that was sacred to humans was made devil worshipping, right? So rituals and traditions and fire and, uh, you know, the horns uh, and the wolf. So if you look at pre-Inquisition Europe, there are stories of werewolf or men, wolf, creatures that are more like fairies, you know, that come at night and steal your shoes. And then in the morning, the kids run into the forest looking for the wolf, human, fairy, and the shoes. And it's a, it was a playful, mm. you know, creature, creature of the forest. And then by the 12th century, 11th, 12th century, it became the, the, the bloodthirsty beast that would come and steal your children and eat them, you know, uh, for, for breakfast. And and, and humans, we are creatures of uh, short-term memory. You know, if you if you really stick with a story or a philosophy, not too long, we begin forgetting. And in the term, you know, in the span of one or two generations, some of the most sacred traditions and and legends and mythology all around the world has been completely eradicated with a new the new philosophy, the new status quo. That's when uh, they start then 
some folklore ensue, and then the printing press, the Brothers Grimm, collecting now stories, some of the folklore and turning into children's stories, so the Little Red Riding Hood, the Three Little Pigs, the Big Bad Wolf, mm-hmm. all those things that became became the you know global children's stories and you know became the the 16th and 17th century version of Harry Potter everybody reads it and then of course the the last nail in the coffin was Hollywood with their movies and and so everybody's as, as terrified of wolves and it creates wolf create culturally speaking either this incredible love or this incredible fear mm. there's no other animal you don't hear about the big bad bear or the big bad mountain lion or the big bad yeah, rhino, right? I mean, is it's the only one, and that creates it has this this cultural reaction. Okay, so that's the second piece. And the third piece, I mentioned something about how wolves were sacred to us until very recent in our history, and now so science is now beginning to prove or suggest, you know, based on some uh, epigenetic studies and recent archaeological evidence, beginning to suggest what traditions have been talking about for millennia which is the wolf is the first animal we ever associated with. And it's an animal that we have partnered with to the point that some scientists talk about co-domestication and co-evolution. So this, the old theories were, you know, the almighty human came and grabbed a couple of puppies from a wolf den and took him to the camp and tamed them and made him into their, their, their little pet. That one has been mostly discarded and replaced by a theory where it seemed like we, at some points in our evolution, we were facing extinction, and there's proof of this now. And and we looked to wolves for guidance, for guidance in the sense that we began copying migrating patterns by following the wolf. We were able to find prey more easily. We began copying their uh, hunting techniques, their social structure that helped us to be more effective instead of just mom and dad taking care of the, the, the young, we extended it and we created basically the extended family model. So the village and the tribe takes care of all the kids. So the, the you know, the hunters can go and hunt together. The, the warriors can go and fight together. They can stay together and, and build communal fires instead of five fires. So there's a number of uh, techniques, uh, a number of um, revolutionary way of being that we imitated from wolves. So, and that's, we're talking about a few hundred thousand years ago. So over the millennia, some, some biologists believe that we have a memory in our DNA of this connection with wolves. Mm. And my theory, what I based the entire book on, is that when I face, I put these, these uh, highly at-risk individuals uh, in front of the wolves and I facilitate that process, that ancestral memory gets activated, which uh, opens up basically created what I was looking for 14 years ago, created immediate trust, immediate openness, and the ability to reset the system and start anew. Wow, so incredible. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Have you got some uh, stories about like, explain how that kind of transformation can occur, how it might look? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll paraphrase. I mean, the, the, the best developed stories are the ones that I put in the book. Right. We have en- endless, endless stories. I mean, it's not that we have endless stories. Every group that we can we comes to the ranch, and we have groups certain times of the year, every single day. We we witness the miracle of this wolf-human connection, very, very profound ways. And um, this is a story that I, I, I've I've told before, but it's one of my favorites because it touched me, touches me personally. Uh, a, a young man in, in foster care, an African American kid, 14 years old. I came to the ranch after. You know, we, we are we are considered a prison diversion program. So the kids, some of the kids get sent get sent to us right one step before landing themselves in juvie or in a level 14 uh, security level of foster care. So this, this young man came to us in in that situation. He was about to be uh, locked up and he couldn't respond to anything. He couldn't respond to anything. He was violent. He was attacking his caretakers. He was punching holes in the wall, throwing things out the window. I mean, uh, unmanageable, and he would not trust or believe, you know, anybody. So he came to Wolf Connections. He comes with actually security guards because they think he will get he will get aggressive. Hmm. So uh, when they come to the program, they come for a few weeks, right? So at the beginning, he immediately connected 
with one particular wolf that had a similar past of abandonment. He he was in foster care since he was you know a couple of years old, and then moved from home to home to placement to foster care agency to I mean like so he by the time he came to us he he lived in a bunch of different places and you know he was already I would have been worse than him in, in the same situation. Mm. So he bonded with a wolf that uh, had a similar past and it was pretty beat up and develop a relationship of trust and um, very quickly in the first you know couple of days and so they they witnessed in him a, an immediate change and the, the the first change was that uh the days that he would come to wolf connection wasn't every day it was you know day or two a week the day that he would come to wolf connection was the only day he would wake up in the morning do his bed brush his teeth you know get dressed on time have breakfast i mean so because he had to do all those things in order to be allowed back right the other thing is that he couldn't get into fights. He couldn't break anything. He couldn't attack any, anybody. He couldn't, right, in order to come back the following week. So he immediately began self-regulating. He immediately began, because, uh, and then he started saying, I need to behave this way because this particular wolf is waiting for me. You know, I cannot let her down. Not let him down. Right. So he, he struck a chord in me. I, I really, I really appreciate it. He, he, I learned to love him really quickly and, so I began, I trusted him and I began teaching him how to build things. So he started helping me building some of the fencing, build a, you know, repair a, one of the wolf houses with, you know, wood. So I taught him how to use a, a hammer and a screwdriver and a, you know, saw and this, those kind of the basic hand tools. So, and we, we started opening a trail. So, so now these caretakers come to the ranch and I see this kid with a machete, right? And they start freaking out. And I and and I told the kid that I would trust him, you know that, and he never abused that uh, that trust. Long story short, he asked his caretakers to buy him a, a utility belt with a hammer and uh, some screws and uh, as, um, some basic tools. And he began going around the group home where he lived, fixing the stuff that he broke, mm-hmm. uh, repairing some extra you know, squeaky hinges and a, and a leaking faucet. And he began being a role model for coping and for uh, leadership from, from his group. So, so much so, he graduated Wolf Connection. And then we remained, we remained in touch for a long time, mostly because he, uh, towards the end of the program, he came and asked me if I would be willing to adopt him. And, and that was, you know, saying no to that, that was one of the toughest decisions I ever mm. had to make. And it wasn't no because I wouldn't, I mean, I would have adopted him in a, in a flash. And and I didn't because I was living at the time in a trailer in the middle of the desert with a pack of 25 wolves. <laughs> and I, uh, that wasn't going to fly with the Department of Children and Family Services, you know, the foster care system. Mm. So it, I wasn't in a, in a placement that was conducive to a, um, an approval. And it was so tough for me, you know, and I would remain in touch. We're still in touch today. It's been years. And I followed him through high school, through the different placements. He he graduated. He, he graduated at the president of the student council in high school. Wow! And and uh, went on to study uh, criminal justice. I mean, it's just beginning, but he's on his way. And he has been a, a gentleman to the the girls that I saw him dating. I mean, it was a 180 degree. And we see we see changes like this often. We see kids in the, the last leg. You know, so many people talk about wanting to make a difference. How does it feel to actually know that you've made a difference? I mean, I'm sure many people's lives. Yeah, I mean, it becomes bigger than you. Mm. So initially, initially, you feel good about yourself, and then, uh, and then you're going to feeling really good about yourself and thinking that, you know, you are someone and you are making a difference. You're leaving a legacy and all the things. And at least in my case, um, all that stage, I know, suddenly becomes a function of, of, of why I exist, right? I mean, uh, um, I can't imagine not doing that. Hmm. I, can, I, you know, I, can, I can't imagine not doing it. Yeah. And look at what, what I do also on the side. I mean, I have all this work at Wolf Connection, and then I have you know, my, my private practice. I take two or three students every year. So you know, every breath I take is about transformation, and every bit of my heart is dedicated to service. I think it's an overall. My life has been taken over by by a, by a higher thing, like you know, yeah. like I described earlier. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
Tell me the story about Miko and Nina. Miko and Nina. So Nina was a... Miko and Nina, the good piece, part about that is that it was one day. It was one day, about three or four hours, that Miko and Nina met, and Miko transforms Nina's life for good. So we met Nina. She was in a residential treatment facility. She, she grew up with a lot of abuse. And she turned to drugs and alcohol. And we came to do this program at uh, Sober Living. No, it wasn't Sober Living. It was at, initial, at a rehab rehab center, but also dual purpose. It was for, for not only, um, they call them dual purpose when it's only it's addiction and mental health. So this, this, this young woman had uh, phobias that wouldn't allow her to, to be outdoors. She couldn't walk on any crunching things, you know, like leaves or crumbs or paper even on the floor. And, and she would walk around the house. I don't know if you know, these people that would wash their hands you know, four times an hour or 10 times an hour. And, and then she would walk around the house just jumping from tile to tile. She couldn't step on the, on the cracks between the tiles on the floor. So um, there was a lot going on. And so I would come to the, this home and then they tell us that, you know, she was not going to participate. And I said, well, why don't you let me go in the house with one of the, one of the, the wolf dogs and see what she says. So we walk in, not with Miko. Miko was a giant, giant wolf. Uh, I mean, you know, four, four feet tall. I mean, very intimidating. But uh, we t- I had a, uh, we still have her uh, a coyote name a coyote wolf mix named Ayasha, very tiny, you know, 45, 50, 60 pounds. You know, we, we call her the the Disney wolf because she has this beautiful face with big eyes. I mean, very welcoming. And um, so I walk in the house with her, and uh, Nina was inside the house, and we can uh, she immediately connected. And so I said, well, we have some other ones outside. Do you want to come see them? I said, sure. So she walked out like nothing was happening. After, I mean, three minutes with a wolf inside the house, right? She walks out and goes out to see the wolves outside. And all that initial burst ended when she get to the edge of the concrete into the grass. And then she stopped there and froze, right? So from the edge of the concrete uh, drywall, uh, um, driveway, she was looking at the wolves. So I, I, I pretended I didn't notice and I... I begin my presentation. I tell them about one wolf and the other wolf. And this is Miko. And Miko just zero in on her. I mean, she was like, you know, eyeballing her, like straight up completely aware of what was going on. So Miko took a couple of steps towards her. And and Nina was actually took two steps into the dry leaves. It was a a nice yard with some big uh, oak trees. And if you know the oak trees, when they, they leave, they, they get dry and they crunch a lot. So you took a couple of steps, freezes again, the wolf comes and, and I continue, you know, facilitating the interaction. So kind of, uh, I was trying to prevent the, the freak out, you know, because I mean, those kind of phobias, the moment they kick in, there's no, no coming back mm. for a little while. So I was trying to keep it at bay. She was freaking out and freezing. And I was trying to give it, you know, just a little inch forward, an inch forward. And so after the presentation, we, there was a trail. It was, it was in the mountains in the Malibu area in, in LA. There's a lot, uh, so there was a trail behind in the mountains. And we typically, the program includes going hiking with the wolves in some form. So we went on a hike and Nina said, well, I'll come. So all of a sudden, we have this, this person that has agoraphobia and she can't get out of the house, just hit the trail with us. And walking in the back next to Nina, uh, next to Miko, and we, I just let it be. I pretend that nothing happens. You know, the, some of the, the, the therapists are like eyeballing each other, like what's going on here? And um, 20 minutes into the trail, Anina is still behind us. I mean, in the middle of nowhere with pollen and dirt and, and trees. So the, the peak moment of the, this interaction happened when we stopped for a, for a sip of water in a, in a place overlooking kind of the valley. So it was a nice panoramic a view uh, of you know the ocean and the, the the mountains, so Nina comes to say hi to Miko, and we I teach her that you know she needs to kneel down, come to her height, so the the, the wolf feels more uh, comfortable. So the moment she kneels down and offers his hand, Miko launches herself on her, starts licking her and and you know putting her paws on her to the point that Nina actually falls back into the bushes, you know 
legs up in the air, you know, and Miko now sit, sitting on her. I mean, it was a 95-pound female wolf. I mean, it wasn't just a little thing, you know, you know, in size like, almost as big as Nina. And licking and rolling and playing. And, and Nina is crying, laughing hysterically, crying again, laughing. I mean, back and forth, all this release. And all she can say, and this is not in the book, um, but all she can say is, wait until Dr. Goldman hears this. Wait until Dr. <laughs> Dr. Goldman was her psychiatrist. And and uh, they couldn't make any progress with her. And all of a sudden, here it is, you know, the, this woman, like, completely letting go. Mm. So so after this uh, this one event, this um, one interaction, Nina actually applied for a therapy dog and was released from the, from the mental health home two or three months prior to what her schedule release went back to to college she was um she had a relationship at the time that that fell apart so she went back to the relationship back to college back to working part-time and with the help of this you know therapy therapy dog that she was able to to get so incredible yeah I'm guessing you have a ton of stories like that. You said there's a lot of them in the yes, book. Yes, yes, we do. We do. Yeah. We do. Yeah. What are you? The book's called uh, The Wolf Connection, and it's what wolves can teach us about being human. Yep. What do you hope people get out of the book? Well, the basic premise of the book is a, it's a very ambitious book. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, addresses uh, what wolves are for us in a number of ways. So the the animal that we see in the wild is only one aspect of the wolf. I mean, mm. so there's a, I, I refer to at the, in the book at the mythological wolf in terms of the story, the ritualistic. So I go to indigenous practices and, you know, wolf, wolf rituals and so on. And then I start comparing wolf and humans all along. So the basic premise of the book is the wolf, now science it suggests that the wolf has helped us survive and helped us, helped us thrive in our history, in our evolution, in prehistoric times. And and it can help us again. You know, humans. We are. You know, there's a lot of people. It's a lot of people waking up. A lot of people getting uh, smelling the coffee, beginning to pay attention to the way we consume, the, the way we talk to each other, the way we collaborate, the way we live from the heart opposed to from the head. So that's an individual sparks happening. But as a species, we're still pretty fucked up, <laughs> right? As a species, we're still lost. We're still not daring make significant changes in the direction that we go as a species. So, uh, you know, there's nothing today that we consume. There's no service and or product today that doesn't create some degree of damage and, and pollution at some level, right? So what is the global economy, 80 trillion or something like that? So we create 80 trillion dollars in pollution and impact and de- devastation um, on a regular basis. So I believe the wolf has is the animal is the one animal that can help us reclaim and integrate some of the traditional ways with a healthy way of being in modern times. So I don't advocate of going back into the way of the ancestors mm-hmm. because I believe it's not possible, it's not practical. But I do advocate to reclaim the the way of the ancestors to be integrated and enmeshed or woven into into our modern technology in a way that our decisions are heart-based, are freedom-based, are um, evolution-based, are considering the good of all concern, opposed to fear-based or control-based or, you know, expansive instead of shrinking. And I believe the wolf can teach us that. That's a beautiful, beautiful message and well-timed. Yeah. So hopefully, book, I, hopefully, I mean, I put it at the very end of the book, the last sentence is that hopefully you don't just consider this, in, you know, intellectual entertainment, but you actually practice it. So we'll see. Cool. We'll put some links. Obviously, it'll be on Amazon and all the other um, major places. So we'll put some links uh, in the notes about that. Teo, thanks for coming and spending time with us. Really beautiful to hear your story, and it's so unique. It's very inspiring. Thank you, Thank you brother. It's um, good to be with you. Always. The last uh, question we ask everyone is about your dark side. So my what? Your dark side. So you know, it's easy to come onto a podcast and talk about all the nice things and tell the good stories. But uh, just to kind of mix it up a bit, get a little bit vulnerable with us. Do you have a dark side that you have to watch out for? Man, I'm mostly I'm mostly dark side. Right. I'm mostly dark side. Um, so 
when you really commit to to deep spiritual practice, the range of who you could be really opens up. So most days, most days of my, my experience of most days will go from suicide to complete bliss. Most days I experience the most gruesome self-destruction and I could be a sociopath very quickly. And in the same day, I leave heaven on earth. And, and that's, the, that's the path I walk. You have a lot of awareness around that. How do you embrace your dark side? Well, how can you not embrace it? So my experience of that is back to something I said earlier about choice. I, it's a... Uh, you know, in a single day, I can I experience the depth of the human condition, the dysfunction, the horror, the, you know, mass shootings, right? And then the, the sublime side of humans, you know, all the love and all the passion and all that. And I don't think you can experience, experience one without the other, realistically speaking. I, I, I welcome this breath of experience. And, and at the same time, it's a, it's a challenge. You know, all it takes, a, you know, one extra cookie, one one too many cookies. Only one to be to be deep in in the worst shit you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, totally. But now that I make a joke, uh, this is these are two things. I mean, Carlos uh, Castaneda said something like, you know, the the journey, our journey is to balance the horror of being a hu- human to the wonder with the wonder of being human. Mm. And one of the the main techniques or the only thing that really mitigates the sting of this 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 kind of experience is humor you make fun you make you know not not to diffuse but to cut cut the the sharp edge you know soften the sharp edge edge of finality mm-hmm. yeah beautiful it's a great place for us to finish again thanks man thanks for being here thanks for doing what you do thank you brother and wish thank you all you. the luck with the book look forward thank to it so much i love you thanks love you too Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, as always, spending time with us. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as uh, I did. Uh, if you think someone would appreciate this or enjoy it or uh, you want to get a copy of Tao's book, share the video around, give it a like, check out Amazon tomorrow when Tao's book launches. It's called The Wolf Connection. Look out for it on all the places that you buy your books from. And again, thanks for watching. I'll be back next week with episode number 85 of The Nathan Seward Show. That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.